among the tribes in southern Africa, where I was born and where I grew up, and where a part of my heart will always be, there is a tradition that meant so much to me the first time I heard it, and it just seems to mean more and more to me with the passing of years. I'd like to, to share this with you today. It feels foundational to this exploration of fear that uh, is something of the focus of our time together today. Shortly after uh, her wedding day, the young bride leaves the hustle and bustle of her village and goes off to a quiet place. She perhaps finds a place under a tree or next to a river in the tall grass of the felt. And she sits down and she listens. And she listens until she hears the strains, the melody, the words, the chords of her firstborn child who has yet even to be conceived. And when she hears the song and knows it well, it may take several days, she then returns to the village and teaches the song to her husband. And it's the song that accompanies their lovemaking when the child is conceived. And it's the song that both the husband and the wife together sing to the developing fetus and the infant within the, the womb of the mother. It's sung by the midwives as they gather around the bed of the birthing woman, and it is sung to the child when the child emerges from the birth canal. And this is the song of this child that is sung at all the important junctures in the evolution of that particular life. It's sung certainly on birthdays. It is sung in the rites of passage of this child into adolescence, into puberty, into adulthood. It accompanies all the rituals uh, of the years. Together, the song, the, the, the song of the husband and the wife are sung together on the wedding day. And the final times that this song is sung is by friends, families, children who are gathered around the bed of the dying man or woman. And the very final time that the song is sung is when the body is lowered into the grave and the soil is placed upon the coffin if there is one. For me, it was on a very distant mountaintop in the Valley of a Thousand Hills in Zululand, South Africa, that I first heard the teachings of the Buddha almost 22 years ago. When I came to this property last year for the first time, it was the only time in all my years of traveling in exile that I've been anywhere that has evoked so powerfully the memory 
of the mountaintop where I first heard these teachings and where I subsequently went on to spend a year of my life. Alan Payton, the South African author, based his novel Cry the Beloved Country, at least partly, in this wonderful place called Itopo, which is another misty mountaintop, as we are so fortunate uh, uh, to be here today. They there today are also leading a retreat. And Alan Payton spoke about it far more eloquently than I could. He said, there is a lovely road that runs from Ikopo into the hills. These hills are grass-covered and rolling, and they are lovely beyond any singing of it. The road climbs seven miles into them to Carisbrook, and from there, if there is no mist, you look down on one of the fairest valleys of Africa. About you there is grass and bracken, and you may the, hear the forlorn cry of the Titahoya, one of the birds of the felt. And below you in the, is the valley of the Umzumkulu on its journey to the Drakensberg and then the sea, and beyond and behind the river, great hill after great hill, and beyond and behind them the mountains of Ingeli and East Griqualand. Like here, he says, the grass there is rich and matted. You cannot see the soil. It holds rain and the mist, and they seep into the ground, feeding the streams in every kloof. It is well tended, and not too many cattle feed upon it. Not too many fires burn it, laying bare the soil. He says, stand unshod upon it, for the ground is holy even being as it came from the Creator. Keep it, guard it, care for it, for it keeps men, it guards men, and cares for men. Destroy it, and every woman and every man is destroyed. And for me, the practice of meditation that I um, I'm so privileged to share with you today has been certainly perhaps the most significant way in which over the years I am beginning to hear and understand my own particular song. And for me, right from the beginning, my song called me to know who I was beyond all the labels of my life, all the boxes in which I both had placed myself and in which I had been placed. And I ask this rhetorically, who are we beyond all the personas that we carry, all the personalities, all the labels, all the ways that we define ourselves and are defined by those around us and the society in which we live? It feels so important increasingly over the years, to live a life that is authentic to the essence of that song, that I thank God begins to emerge from the clouds of forgetfulness that have kept it hidden for so long. And while we each have our own song, I have no doubt that the threads that weave their way through the currents of this heart that we all share, the songs of that thread are calling us to a love that is completely and absolutely without condition. 
to a happiness that is not in any way contingent upon the content of our experience or about the way and the circumstances of our lives. And that that song, if it is true and authentic, must deliver us to the doorstep of that peace, as Christ said, that passes all understanding. And I feel that the meditation practice is so much about remembering that which we have forgotten, metaphorically, we might call it the sun, that all it is that prevents us from hearing the deepest truth and knowing those truths for ourselves are these clouds. In the Buddhist text, sometimes these clouds are referred to as obscurations. I like that. The obscurations of what is true. And if we are determined and stirred to know what it means to live a full and total, complete life where the sun is what defines our days, then our journey must take us to edges within ourselves that we've never been before. To places that are perhaps more uncomfortable and to places that are completely unfamiliar. And if we are willing to take that grand and courageous step, there will be fear because we cannot go into places that are unknown to us without there being a concurrent experience of fear. This is part of the poignancy of human life. And this is risky business. Going to the edges of what is familiar requires a boldness and a courage that sometimes we never knew was there, but I believe is waiting as potential for all of us every moment of every day. Meditation practice, and I will speak a little during the course of this talk about dealing specifically with difficult emotions in the meditation practice. But if it is not a contrivance, if it is not some, um, some feel-good experience, meditation must bring us face-to-face -face with ourselves. And hopefully we have the capacity to acknowledge with frankness and with humility the truth of what we find and then be willing to grapple and respond. One of the myths that I find most stirring and particularly pertinent to, um, to today is the myth of Narcissus. Narcissus was this child who was born to the river god Cephasus and his, his mother's name was Lerope, to Cephasus and Lerope. And one day Lerope, his mom, went to a seer, to Teresius, and said to him, will my child, this beautiful young boy, live to a ripe old age? And Teresius said, yes, he says, if he will not have come to know, to know himself. 
So if he doesn't come to know himself, he will live to a ripe old age. And Narcissus grew up into the most gorgeous and handsome young man. And it's said that in his 16th year, every maiden was head over heels in love with him, and every young boy was smitten with affection and desire for Narcissus. And he spurned and rejected every overture of devotion and affection that came his way. And he was surrounded by the debris of unrequited love. And understandably, people were not very happy with him and were jealous. And it said that one of his suitors, in frustration, offered a cry up to the gods in heaven and said to him, May Narcissus fall in love and may he not be able to possess his beloved just the way all of us have fallen in love with him and we cannot possess him. And it said that that prayer went up into the heavens and reached Nemesis, who was the god of retribution, who judged this particular prayer worthy of response. And so he granted the prayer. And so as the story goes, Narcissus is out in the woods and he's hunting. And at the end of the day, he comes to a pond. It's a beautiful, glistening, crystal clear pond. And he sits himself down beside this pond in the coolness of the forest to take a sip of water and to wash his face. And he leans over to do so. And for the first time in his 16 years, he sees a complete, total image of himself for the first time. And in an instant, he realizes just why it is that everybody is head over heels in love for him. He marvels at the image in the water that comes to greet him, and he falls head over heels in love with this image. And so there he is in this forest, staring at the image, and realizing that it's insubstantial, that it can never satisfy him, and yet he's absolutely transfixed, and he cannot quench his passion. And so, in this way, of course, the prayer of that guy was really answered. But then something really interesting started happening. On the one hand, he turned to skin and bone because he was so transfixed with his own beauty that he couldn't move from the side of the pond. And on the other hand, there was a stirring within him, and this is um, Jung's interpretation of this, and also Joseph Campbell gives it the same spin. He says that he, he was so transfixed by the beauty that he was stirred to know the experience of that beauty that was not illusional. He wanted an experience of that beauty that was not illusionary and that was, um, that was trustworthy. And so he toppled head over heels into the pond and went into what is called the underworld, into the shadow, into the darkness, where as the myth unfolds, he grappled and tangled and struggled with himself. And eventually, he left his body, he died, and his body was never recovered. But his triumph was evidenced by what the woodland um, nymphs and 
the warden nymphs did was they caused to rise this beautiful flower that emerged all around the banks of this little pond, which we now call Narcissus. And Narcissus was the evidence of his triumph. And Jung says that what happened as he was staring at the image in the pond was terribly important because unless there is awakened within us that thirst to individuate, to know ourselves, to know who we are, he said, life can never ever be fulfilled. And so that toppling in the pond was, was possible out of his absolute resolve to know himself and to know that beauty that was undefined by circumstances and certainly not the illusion. And so what I'd like to do today in looking at this question of fear is to hopefully, and I never go, know quite know where these talks are going to go, but I'd like to hopefully look at these two elements. One, at the underworld. How is it that we work with fear? How, can the med how is it that the meditation practice can bring us face to face with the enormous transformative potential of the experience of fear? And on the other hand, of the exhilaration and triumph of individuation which ultimately must ripen into an experience of the absolute of God. And so what I'd like to do is just light these two candles as both a reminder to myself, but also that the journey is twofold. One is the willingness to look at what is uncomfortable, and the other is the healing of the self-crucifixion, the inner conflict, the violence that defines so many of the, li of, of the lives of so much of humanity. And so, the underworld, and the triumph of love. If these actually go out and I don't notice them, if you could just let me know, please. South Africa, growing up, was a country of such enormous fear. The system of apartheid was foundationed on fear, of creating division between people so that fear and suspicion would perpetuate what I think was probably one of the greatest violences that human beings have ever done to one another. And in beginning this exploration of fear, I'd like to share with you the words of one of the Afrikaner writers uh, from South Africa, E.M. Kutsia, who wrote this incredible mythology, an African mythology on fear, about how it is that we human beings can, in our collusion with fear, create monsters. 
that were never ever there and they'd terrify ourselves with what we've created. And this book he wrote is called Waiting for the Barbarians. And she says, last year, stories began to reach us from the capital of unrest among the barbarians. Traders traveling safe routes had been attacked and plundered. Stock thefts had increased in scale and audacity. A party of census officials had disappeared and been found buried in shallow graves. Shots had been fired at a provincial governor during a tour of inspection. There had been clashes with border patrols. The barbarian tribes were arming, the rumor went. The empire should take precautionary measures, for there would certainly be war. And then he says, of this unrest, I myself saw nothing. In private, I observed that once in every generation, without fail, there is an episode of hysteria about the barbarians. There is no woman living along the frontier who has not dreamed of a dark barbarian hand coming out from under the bed to grip her ankle. No man who has not frightened himself with visions of the barbarians carousing in his home, breaking the plates, setting fire to the curtains, raping his daughters. These dreams are the consequence of too much ease. Show me a barbarian army and I will believe. In in the unfolding of the meditation practice, it feels so important to both acknowledge the landscapes, the capacities that all of us share to love and to care, all that is beautiful that flowers in the opening of this bud, this flower bud that is, I feel, um, an altogether appropriate metaphor for the spiritual journey. In the opening of these petals, we come to find a capacity to love and to care, to nurture, to be kind, that is way beyond our wildest imaginings. And it feels so important to acknowledge and to celebrate these capacities because as a part of that very same opening, flowering, blossoming, we also come upon the capacity to hate and to rage, to fear, to be jealous, to be envious, to be greedy that tears our heart apart. So much of this information flies in the face of all the notions and ideas that we have about who we are, all those persona that I mentioned earlier on. And fear, certainly in my experience, has been probably the most difficult of the emotion energies to work with. For all of us, when these energies arrive, it is instinctual. It's part of the poignancy of being human beings, that we deny it, we avoid it, we'll do whatever we can to not experience it. And yet at some point, the pain of that avoidance and denial becomes untenable. And so we do as narcissists did. We topple over into the underworld. 
and say, do your worst, I'm ready to face you. And so how is it that the meditation practice blesses and gifts us with this capacity to take this tumble? Well, the most important thing, of course, is to recognize the energy of fear when it arises. I remember for me in the early years of meditation (coughs) practice, there was all this talk about fear, and I kind of had this idea that I didn't have any fear, that there was no fear there. And then after a number of years on a retreat, I had this experience of such peace and happiness. And I realized that really, this was my first experience of the absence of fear. And it was in the absence of fear that I came to understand this energy that was so familiar in my life that I never even knew that it was there. And so the first thing about working with fear is recognizing it. How does it feel? The meditation practice can be so helpful. Just as when we're watching the sensations in the body, so when something arises that we're not quite sure about this energy, are we willing to stop and say, what is this? How do I feel it? Where do I feel it? Do we accept that energy if it's uncomfortable or do we fight it? So we recognize it and then do we accept it? Now, as you can appreciate, what we push away just creates more struggle. So the meditation practice is about befriending, recognizing and befriending what it is that arises. It's easy to befriend love and compassion and forgiveness and and peace, but can we have a similar reception for the energies of fear and anger and so forth as they arrive? I love the image of befriending fear, of making a friend of fear of eventually, hopefully, one day being able to say, I see you. I see you like an old cantankerous friend who's come and gone so many times. I see you. I'll take friends with you. I will not run from you. Let's sit down and let's negotiate together. Let's be in relationship. It's really triumphant. Because as human beings, as a species, we are largely a species with fear lapping at our ankles as we try everything we can to avoid it. Can we be absolutely naked in the presence of fear? Naked in the sense of like leaving outside of the door everything of the past, all the anxieties of the future, can we just come without any clothing, any protection to the experience of fear and say, I am willing to die. Do your worst. Here I am. For me, somehow, this must have been the image of the Buddha when he sat down under the tree and said, let the earth bear witness to my right to know the truth. And of course, he was assaulted by the forces of his mind, terrible fears and angers and greed. And he just was there, unwavering in his experience of awakening. Or like Christ in the desert when he was tormented, you know, and you know, all, the, all the temptations of Christ. And there was just a dogged willingness to be with what St. John of the Cross calls 
the dark night of the soul, befriending, being with this energy that is so scary. I recently read, uh, there's a wonderful meditation teacher, he's a monk, Achan Sunedo in England. He talks about developing compassionate curiosity. Compassionate curiosity about fear. How does fear work? Where do I feel it? Not from a place of, oh, I've got to get rid of it, but out of compassion. It's like, there's so much pain within me from fear. There's so much pain in the world. I will know fear, not only for myself and for my own so-called freedom from suffering, but for the well-being of the world. Compassionate curiosity. And sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes we have to know this is too much right now. The mind is scattered, I'm feeling confused. We pull back, we open the door, we go outside, we look at the ocean, we look at nature, we fortify ourselves, and then perhaps we come back later. We don't have to be like kamikaze pilots loaded with testosterone to try and get to the middle and the heart of fear right now. That's almost like a sort of a fearful response itself. It's like, how is this fear? Is this workable? How close can I go? Not that we have to burn ourselves, because that's the old way. That's the way of violence. That's the way of hurting ourselves. But out of compassion and kindness to myself, how is it that I can get to the heart of this and understand it and receive whatever wisdom is there for me, whatever understanding? Such a different, such a receptive, um, sort of um, welcoming response to fear that in and of itself is so rejecting. And then patience. Working with fear calls for such patience from ourselves. Sometimes we can be standing on these landscapes of fear and the world can feel so barren and so empty and so loveless and so difficult. And can we stay there? Can we be there? When Alan Payton was writing his novel, Cry the Beloved Country, and looking out over that same landscape through the lenses of apartheid and through the lenses of fear, he put it this way. He says, he says, the great red hills stand <coughs> desolate now torn away like flesh. Stand shot upon it, just looking at the violence, the scar, the wound of apartheid and separation. He said, stand unshod upon this land now. Now stand shod on this land, for it is coarse and sharp, and the stones cut under the feet. It is not kept or guarded or cared for any longer. It no longer keeps men, guards men, cares for men. The Tittahoyer does not cry here anymore. He said, the lightning flashes over those beloved mountains. The clouds pour down upon them. The dead streams come to life, full of the red blood of the earth. And can we be there on that landscape too? It's easy to meditate when things are going well. It's so much more difficult in the fire of fear.
Rumi, the great Sufi poet, has this, well, I believe I read it at the last retreat. He says, giving an image for working with fear, he says, keep going, keep walking, though there is no place to get to. Don't try to see through the distances, the future. That's not for human beings. And then he says, move within, but don't move the way fear makes you move. Move within, but don't move the way fear makes you move. And so in the meditation practice, this energy arises. We say, what is it? Where do I feel it? How do I feel it? in my face. Is this fear? Is my face tight? How's my belly? Is tightness in my belly? My back maybe, my groin, the genital area, my knees are tight. Beginning to see how the sensations are. Opening the sensations, not with the words, not with the drama, not with all of that. We do that so well. But can I just be with the fire of fear bubbling up from the solar plexus? Just be there, befriending fear, coming to know it, not as a persecutor, but as a part of human life that we all share. We're not looking for an experience of the end of fear because we're human beings and fear is a part of the whole catastrophe. It's about our relationship with fear, and that is why this meditation practice is so transformative, if I might speak personally. To sound a bit like a, this is how it is. <laughs> so if, if I do that, you know, throw something at me. Um, but it's like, can we heal our relationships with what is difficult? Seems like such a succulent possibility in the practices. And open to the resistance to fear. You know, sometimes there's fear of fear. Fear arises and we get scared. And so there's fear, and there's the fear of fear, and then there's more fear. And eventually what happens is there's a whole lot of fear that has nothing to do with what originally was evoked, and is far greater than what arose a few minutes ago. One of the great Sufi poets, Hafiz, speaks a lot about love and a lot about fear, and this is how he, he puts it. Beloved Hafiz from Shiraz in Iran. He says, I once had a student who would sit alone in his house at night, shivering with worries and fears, and come morning, he would often look as though he'd been raped by a ghost. Then one day, out of my great love for him, I crafted a knife, and from my own divine sword, I sliced through him. And since then, I've become very proud of the student. For now, come nightfall, not only has he lost all of his fear, but now that he goes out, just looking for trouble. So can we get to that place where when the fear arises, we're not cowering and cringing in the face of it, but that we're fortified and strong and befriended, and we can go out and look for trouble. 
And this process of individuation, I feel, is the heartbeat of what it means to look for trouble. And there is such, such reward because what we find so poignantly and paradoxically is that there is fear that we're going to remain in the boxes that we and others have created for ourselves. There's a fear that we're going to die in those boxes, and there's a fear that we're going to leave the comfort and security and the familiarity. So there's fear in and there's fear out. That's so poignant. That is so paradoxical. And yet, at some point, we have to say no. It's like, I will no longer be defined by anything other than what is true for me. I will let my song soar through my heart without restraint. Not tomorrow, not in the meantime, but now. And so we take a stand against the contracted response to life, from that life where it feels as though on some level, either gross or even in the most subtle way, that life is lived in some sort of solitary confinement from the whole, from the potential, from what we believe must be possible for us. And it's tiring, and sometimes we get so tired, these landscapes of dealing with fear again and again. Sometimes when our buttons are pushed in particular ways that evoke history and times for us that were difficult, there's that old familiar roar of fear, the fear of being annihilated, the fear of being wrong, the fear of not pleasing someone, the fear of not living up to expectations, the fear of denying oneself. That can be so wearing and so difficult. Hafiz, looking out on that world, said, you know, says, just sit there right now. Don't do a thing, just rest. For your separation from God, from love, is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you some trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. Use my soft words as a cushion for your head. He says, I think we are frightened every moment of our lives until we know love. And it seems that the true love, the love that is our birthright, the love that is not contingent on the circumstances of our lives or the content of our experience, the love that is not conditional on a single thing requires that we do a nosedive, as Narcissus did, into the underworld and be willing to go into what have been called the places that scare us and know ourselves there for the first time. Where is it that we take our cues in life when a decision is to be made. Do we drag the past into the present and allow that to be the light that defines us now? Or do we live with that amount of boldness, that amount of spontaneity, with that presence, which is the essence of what brings us here today? Can we, in this moment, look, feel, know what is true, 
and respond to that and take our cues from no other direction. Pretty scary stuff. And yet, what else are we going to do eventually? Naomi Shihab Nai, the Palestinian poet, puts it this way. She says, when they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice they once wrote a poem. Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. Then reply. If they say we should get together, say why? And it's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Like the trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing them all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know that you could tumble in any second. Then decide what it is that you're going to do. Can there be, and this is a rhetorical question, can there be, Gavin, all of us, the courage to be that spontaneous to life, where we don't need to depend on history and reference, that we can be true to ourselves right here, right now. And one of the miracles of the birthing of this self-reference is that as the capacity to listen awakens and ripens, the fear does and must begin to diminish because there's an ever-developing knowing that we will never, ever deny ourselves again, that we will never sacrifice ourselves as we've been sacrificed so often over the years of our human life, that that is no longer negotiable, it is no longer a possibility. We do not live in the fear of abandoning ourselves. And that is the ripening, the ripening of the truest kind of love. Jung puts it this way. He says, when we find what supports us, when we can no longer support ourselves, that forms an indestructible foundation for living. Very dense cogent words that of course will mean different things to different people but he says when we find what supports us when we can no longer support ourselves that forms an indestructible foundation for living we 
we're going all over the world with the poetry today. Mary Oliver is this wonderful woman who lives on Cape Cod where I used to live. Wonderful poet. This is a poem that you are called The Journey. She says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. And you knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and the wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. It kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. And so there's the capacity to nosedive, as Narcissus did, into the underworld. And it's my increasing experience, and perhaps for you too, that while the fear of death and of dying is considerable and terrible and so challenging that really perhaps as fundamental is the fear of not having lived because once we have lived with integrity as she says once the journey is about the flowering and the ripening of the potential within us there is not so much fear of death anymore because we've lived. It's the fear of not having lived that I think is perhaps the greatest torment for our species. And so can we live lives? And the practice certainly can be a bridge to a deeper, deeper life where we are both touched by life, by nature, by God, whatever words you want to use, and that we touch, as the Buddha just before his enlightenment said, let the earth bear witness to my right to be free. The earth bear witness, instead there was like this lion's roar that went through the galaxies and all the planets shook and shaked, but he affirmed his right to be free. We have a right to touch and to be touched to be nature and to be touched and be of nature. This is the life of fearlessness, where we come into relationship with life in the deepest and most unfathomable way possible, where life is lived in contact with one another and in contact with everything that arises. We're not cringing at the arising of fear. We're not denying the anger that is there. We're not trying to sidestep and camouflage the waves of jealousy and envy that course through our broken hearts at times. In the meditation practice, we develop the capacity to just be with what is.
So as we did this morning, we just with the changing sensations of the breathing. Thoughts come, we just let them go, we come back. No agenda, no idea of how the breath should be. Who the hell are we to know how the breath should be? The breath changes, every breath is different. Isn't it incredible that we can think, oh no, my breathing should be longer or deeper or shallower or this is not right, you know? Who's yardstick, you know? Can we just be with the breathing? If there's a discomfort, so-called discomfort in our knee, can we just be with the heat, with the tingling? Nothing more, no drama, not, I'm never going to get up, this is difficult, what am I going to do? Just be with that, just be. Exploring and cultivating the capacity to be uncomfortable. A sound comes, can we just be with the sound? Can we be with the screeching sound of a chainsaw in the same way as we can be with a Brahms lullaby. Developing a mind that has no preferences. That's the peace that passes all understanding. It's not some esoteric, otherworldly, cosmic event. It's the capacity to just be with what is. A sound, a sensation in the body. Fear, anger, jealousy, love, compassion, peace agitation, boredom, the whole tapestry. And then a taste comes by and it's just a taste. Not, oh, what a lovely taste. Oh, next time I should put more pepper in it. No, no, I think a little basil would be good. All extra, just tasting, just touching, just touching. A smell, just a smell, you know. And whether it's a pile of dog poop or whether it's the fragrance of narcissus, it's just a smell. Can we develop that capacity to have a mind that clings to nothing? Because that is the doorway into the heart of life. There is no other way. There is no other way. How are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> okay, a little more to go, all right? Yeah. Okay, so. Uriah Mountain Dreamer, an Indian elder. This is, if he was sitting here today, this is what he would say to each one of us. He would say, it doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what your heart aches for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, and for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring in your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have o if you've been opened by life's betrayals or become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or to fade it or to fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. And it doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. 
I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day. And if you can source your life from God's presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes! It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after a night of grief and despair weary and bruised to the bone and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me who you are or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. And it doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company that you keep in the empty moments. And so, ultimately, the fruition must be about moving beyond the place of self-concern that we know so well to an experience of life that is far more empty, far more vacuous, and far less self-referenced, where we live from what is being called the understanding of the self-absolute with a big S. Can we live more from the self-absolute, where everything is not about the personal, me, mine, our, but about the indivisible, that which we all share. And every step of the way, as the great Tibetan teacher Trungpa said, a friend just sent me this wonderful article by Trungpa, reminding us that it's not about there not being fear. You know, sometimes we think if fear comes up, there's something wrong. Well, that's silly. I mean, you know, we all have fear. We all have thoughts. Same thing, you know. People think I had a bad meditation because I was thinking, you know. It's like, join the club. But Trumpa says, he says, sometimes you become so petrified on your journey that your teeth, your eyes, your hands, your legs are all vibrating. You're hardly sitting in your seat, he says. You are practically levitating with fear. But even that is regarded as an expression of fearlessness. If you have a fundamental connection with the basic, unconditional goodness of life and of ourselves. And so in closing, it feels really important to emphasize that it's not that there's anything wrong with it's about our relationship with fear, even if we're quivering and quaking and levitating off our pillow or chair. It's about our relationship with that, not about 
with not being there. Keep walking, though there's nowhere to get to. Don't try to see into the distances. This is really impossible. That's not for human beings. Walk within, but don't walk the way fear makes you walk, <laughs> makes you move. <coughs> Hafiz puts it this way. <coughs> And I'm always willing to let Hafiz have the last word. <coughs> Hafiz, I know I've mentioned this before and some of you have heard this. Hafiz lived in Shiraz in Iran, which is a town that I have visited several times. And it's a desolate, dusty, barren, windswept town in the southern desert near Afghanistan. But along with that, twice a year, Shiraz bursts into bloom because it's also the city of roses. And so twice a year, Shiraz is an absolute kaleidoscope of color and a heaven of fragrances. And it is in Shiraz that Hafiz was born and that Hafiz died and that he wrote these poems almost 700 years ago. He says, Love wants to reach out and manhandle us. Break all our teacup talk of God. If you had the courage and could give the beloved his choice, some nights he would just drag you around the room by your hair, ripping from your grip all those toys in the world that bring you no joy. Love sometimes gets tired of speaking sweetly and wants to rip to shreds all your erroneous notions of truth that make the fight within yourself, dear one, and with others, causing the world to weep on too many fine days. God wants to manhandle us, lock us inside of a tiny room with himself, and practice his dropkick. <laughs> the beloved sometimes wants to do us a great favor, hold us upside down and shake all the nonsense out. But when we hear he is in such a playful, drunken mood, most everyone I know quickly packs their bags and hightails it out of town. <laughs> May we sit together, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.